With me today is Joe Sear, a rock, pop and soul singer and teacher of CCM Styles. In April 2021, Jo completed her MA in Voice Pedagogy through the Voice Study Centre and will soon begin her PhD study at the Royal Northern College of Music. Jo has presented for the British Voice Association and joins me to discuss teaching popular music styles, the topic of her final MA dissertation project, which has now earned her a publication. Josie, welcome to the Singing Teachers Talk podcast. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Sorry to our listeners, because we're quite the pair today. I sound like a stuffed mushroom and you're just getting over a cold as well. <laughs> yes, we're both on the nasal side. It's fine. It's fine. We, we, we move. Yeah, we don't need to go through pinching our noses and work on nasality. It's, it's all good. A congratulations is in order to you for the publication of your paper in the Journal of Popular Music Education entitled Modern Vocal Pedagogy Investigating a Potential Curricular Framework for Training Popular Music Singing Teachers. So why was this a topic of interest to you? Thank you. Um, Yes, I'm very, very happy about that. Um, Sorry about the wordy title. Um, You know how it is with academia. Um, How did I get onto it? God, where do you want to start? Um, I've been singing these styles um I'm nearly 50 I've been doing it for most of my life so I've been singing them all my life and professionally since I was 21 there wasn't any training for me at school or college to do the kind of singing that I wanted to do um therefore I ran into trouble in my first professional band got nodules had to learn again from scratch and it took me until I was 30 to find a teacher that actually taught my styles so I'm very much trying to be the teacher that I wanted that I never had. And the teacher that I never had that I wanted would have been knowledgeable about um, all the things that people write about what we sing, how we sing, as much up-to-date information as possible from voice science um, and from people who work within our field, within musicology, within all these areas. So that's what I've tried to do. I want a course out there. Um, ideally an accredited one with an institution, I want a course out there that trains people to be popular music singing teachers. Uh, Because having worked in schools for 17 years um, as a peripatetic teacher, there aren't enough of us um, with, you know, in the context of the number of children who want to sing those styles. Um, And also beyond that, you know, at college level, just having, you know, proper knowledge about what's going on in the industry currently how producers think, how engineers think, how they talk, what they expect, how studio singing is different from live singing, um, what you might need to change in your setup um, to do all of that stuff. So it's all very, very in my ballpark. I really love learning about how other people teach these styles, how they learned, trying to uh, assimilate all that information into some kind of framework for some kind of course so that people have the training that I never had as a singer or a teacher. Popular music comes under the umbrella of contemporary commercial music, doesn't it? So why do you think popular music needs to be drawn out and have its own course associated with it? And how does it compare to CCM? Okay, so um, CCM was a term um, originated by Jeannie Levitri over in the States, for which we're all very grateful, us non-classical singers, uh, for her coming up with that term. in my understanding and in all the research I've done, it covers um, styles such as the ones that I like to teach, um, so popular music styles, 
um, rock, pop, soul, R&B, all of that. Also jazz and also musical theatre. So they're all what you would call contemporary non-classical. Because when Jeannie first came up with the term, she was just trying to find a term, an umbrella term for all the styles of singing that are non-classical. So I would say we've probably come a little bit further down the line now, nearly however many, 20 years later, I think, after she made that speech nearly. Um, and I would suggest that jazz is a category on its own because of the kind of improvisation and musical knowledge that you require to sing it. I would also suggest that musical theatre and popular music styles don't necessarily always belong in the same umbrella. I would say that there are some crossovers, um, but I would still suggest that popular music genres, which is to say um, everything from pop, rock, soul, R&B to grime, rap, um, you know, all of those styles, heavy metal, belong in their own camp. Now, all of those genres in themselves are all entirely different. But what sets them apart is whatever the sound is that that singer is using is authentic to what they want to put across for their own music or for the music that they are covering. It is not a character. Now, some people might feel they put on a character to sing a particular ballad or something like that, but they are not a character. They are themselves. And the whole basis of popular music is authenticity. You are being authentic to what you want to put across as a musician and a singer, and you are very individual. You know, when you are recognised, I would say if you're a very, very, very big musical theatre fan, then you can tell the difference between some of the timbres and everything, and you know, same with classical music. But in popular music, you are talking about a huge spectrum of timbral sound and tones and onsets and everything else, most of which are really individual. And in fact, you know, success within those those genre are dependent on you sounding different from a lot of other people different. So, you know, authenticity and playing character are very, very different things. Um, and I would suggest that that's why it needs to be treated differently. How did you go about setting up your research that led to writing this paper and therefore its publication? I started off by reading everything I could lay my hands on, quite frankly, and I mean everything. Um, there, any scientific papers that covered contemporary singing, um, a lot obviously under the CCM banner because that's where um, you know uh, a lot of the research in the contemporary field is happening is under that and, and musical theatre is in that camp, so I had to encompass that. Um, any practical writings as well. Um, you know, my literature review encompassed books that that people have written on contemporary singing training. So this is a voice by Gillianne Case and, and Jeremy Fisher, John Henney's books. I read books by uh, Joe Thompson, who's a, a sort of an Evie Burnett, who were like X Factor coaches. Um, I read unpublished dissertations and theses from people in the States who did PhDs in this area. Um, and everything, anything, podcasts, um, blogs, anything I could lay my hands on. And I looked at all of it because, um, you know, and, and really tapping into musicology as well, because um, there aren't many people, as you know, doing a lot of scientific research in our field. So I really had to widen the net um, and look at everything I could. So I did all that first, and then I distilled that down into some categories that seemed common. Um, I used a systematic coding process and I came up with some categories that seemed to tally and then I started to explore them and compare and contrast them um, and then come up with sort of a distilled it down to a kind of framework um, and then I got a lovely group of focus group of people 
uh, from the industry and teaching areas to assess that um, and make some suggestions. And the result is the paper that you see. And now I'm taking that forward to PhD. So that's the next step. Amazing. Just before I ask you about those categories, how long did it take you to sift through all that material and what was your setup? Did you have like a Thursday evening, I'm in my chair and I've got my glass of wine and that's my reading time or what was that like for you? <laughs> um, I would say it was in fits and starts. Um, once you disappear down the research rabbit hole, it's very hard to get out. Um, anyone will tell you that, um, that's, that's spent a lot of time in research. Um, I found that the more the thing is, is that you, you find a paper you love and, and you and, and you love it and you just want to cite it. Then you go straight to the end of that paper. There's all the other references. Then you start backwards and it can take forever. I would do it quite sporadically. Um, I knew what my deadlines were and I always knew how to meet them. But I would set aside sometimes a, a day at a time to get through all of it. Um, but the note taking was more was more kind of sporadic. I would just do it as and when and tie my references together. And I started to see patterns quite quickly. Um, but um, yeah, it, it did take over my life for a little while, <laughs> probably will again. So the categories that you initially had were to do with vocal health and hygiene, specific stylistic advice, amplifications, microphone and audio technology, strategies for resonance and vocal tract acoustics and breathing strategies. So what was it about those categories that you were seeing come up quite often? And did you have any preconceived ideas about what you might find from your peer group? I I was hoping that they would at least support the idea of doing this. And the nicest thing about it is they all did. They all agreed that it was necessary to do this. Um, and that's really encouraged me moving forward. Um, yeah, I, I mean, the vocal health and hygiene is fair, fairly well acknowledged now. I wouldn't say that that's particularly, but it was an important part of my research to try and find that out. Um, and I saw my role really there as myth busting. So what I wanted to do more than anything is is to get rid of this notion that um, all rock and pop music singers don't don't approach people to get help with their voice if they feel they're suffering. Not true. Um, the idea that they are in voice clinics for voice damage problems more often than classical opera singers, they're not. Um, they're, all of that stuff. I wanted to establish the fact that things have changed and that vocal health and hygiene is really important to a lot of popular music singers and their teachers, as it should be. The nuts and bolts of it aren't, aren't surprising, are they really? You know, it's the basic stuff. But I was looking more at particular things to do in a touring environment um and things like dry ice that you have to put with same as you um and you know just sort of practical concerns the breathing thing was interesting because actually nobody's really looked at breathing on its own for popular music singing um, and of course it depends on the genre very much so but um it's sort of the, uh, it's so tied to the rhythm it's more tied to the rhythm than any other singing um, area, I would suggest. So that really had a lot to do with it. But other things I found out along the way, like different body types breathe differently. So, you know, uh, about isomorphs and ectomorphs and how they, how they, how your size and your shape is impacts your breathing. That was interesting um, because, you know, people different body types sing, um, you know, in those genres and that, and that was quite interesting. So, and looking at breathing and, and, you know, the breathing concerns and needs, for those genres, very different from from classical and musical theatre singing. Um, 
stylistic stuff now that was the interesting one because um as as we were sort of talking about earlier um there are stylistic diverse devices that do come up quite a lot in popular music singing like using creek for an onset um you know some breathy tones sometimes you know but my participants felt that if i put that in a framework it would look more like uh, parameters than options so it was more kind of they said you need to be careful not to include that as if to say everyone needs to teach this down pat so that you know if you do this you'll be one of my participants said if you do this then a b and c you will be a great soul singer so that was one of the most important things to come out of my research that i have to say from that perspective i wasn't expecting is is the strong feeling that be careful with this don't try and make it too much like parameters make it optional um and that was really really interesting the other thing that came out of the research that i think is massively important and that i had neglected because it was really is is only part finished is cultural background cultural context is really really important if you're going to teach stuff like rock um or or pop or particularly r&b and soul styles you absolutely must put them in cultural context it's really important so you know instead of imitating a sound that you hear somebody do without knowledge you need to know where that comes from um so the, these are the things that really strongly came across so the categories that i i did mainly stayed put but there were some changes to the way that they could be interpreted i would say and that's ongoing it's really interesting about the teaching stylistic quality and how I think in the paper it mentions about how it can be maybe a little bit choreographed, as you said, and how the exercise that we do, like let's try breathy onsets on this scale, it becomes more about the exercise and getting the scale pattern right than it does about the freedom and individuality of the style that they're trying to implement this into. What are your thoughts on the importance of scale patterns and exercises around scales in the studio? Um, I would say um, I agree with Kim Chandler on a lot of what she says on scale patterns, not just Kim as well. I think John Henney's talked about it. Matt Edwards has talked about it. Lots of academics um, and researchers uh, and voice teachers have talked about the need to do um, Anne Peckham as well in her contemporary workout books, the need to look at minor and major pentatonic scales, for example, chromatic scales um, as well, um, and blues scales because they do pop up everywhere. And um, I would say it's particularly important for R&B and soul singers to know those patterns because they are used literally everywhere. Any Beyonce lick can be broken down pretty much into those categories. Um, having said that, um, I still think there's value in all kinds of different patterns. Um, you know, and I still do use major scale exercises and minors. I still do use, um, you know, um, triads um, and sixths and sevenths, especially because they come up quite a lot. I think it's, um, but I also think the exercise has to be tailored to what that individual is trying to achieve. Um, so if I have, let's say someone comes in and says, right, I'm trying to do this R&B look that Rihanna does in this song, you know, can you break it down for me? How do we do that? Well, then yes, we will nine times out of 10, it's going to be within those kind of patterns. 
And then it's a question of finding an exercise that's going to help with the flexibility in those patterns and then speed um, and stuff like that. So the nuts and bolts do come in useful, um, but it depends what the artist wants. If if the artist doesn't want to do that, if if they if you know it's pointless doing it, it's pointless. You have to go from what who's in front of you and what they are looking to do, and and, and then go from there. Now that's true of every singing teacher, of course. Um, but because anything goes in popular music, you really do have to take your lead from the student, and what you're there to do is guide them to make that. I like to look at it as I, I tell my students it's like trying on pairs of clothes. <clears throat> you know, or, or, or pairs of shoes or trousers or makeup, and you try that brand or you try that style and you look in the mirror and you're like, is that me? I don't know. Is that me? Do I like that? Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. And in finding your own art, uh, sort of um, authentic voice, you're inevitably going to be trying out some of these clothes and finding some fit and some don't. So if someone comes to you and they and they want options, you can give them options. You can say, okay, this sound, you like this. You could do this like this or like this, or maybe like this. Try it, see how you feel about it. And play with the voice, just play, you know? Not get so fixated on, you must do this, 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 and this. Play, have fun with it, you know? Take the mickey. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Yeah. When it comes to the nuts and bolts, as you mentioned there, um, you also mentioned earlier about how there are things that do cross genre that can be quite helpful, like functional voice training is something irregardless of style. Vocal health is going to be something that is completely exclusive. It just might be a tweak to the context of it. So like a, a popular music artist is more considerate of the dryness on an aeroplane than the musical theatre person in the West End who doesn't have to get on a plane. What role does something like functional voice training have for this style? So for example, if you have a singer come in and their their identity is very much embedded within lots of stylistic flips where they go from a, a chestier sound, for want of a better word, and flip into something breathy and falsetto, is it important for them to be able to find adducted falsetto and, and like a strong head voice if they're never going to use it, even though some might arguably say it would be vocal balance for them to be able to do both? That's a tricky one because um, you're right. There will be some singers who don't. The way I tend to do, it, I'm using this phrase a lot at the moment. Um, I'm look. I look at imitations and limitations. So um, by trying lots of different styles on, as I said, um, you you get to sort of know what you like. It's useful um, for limitations. If someone says, I'd say, okay, you, you can flip up and, you know, into a breathy tone and that's the style you're going for. Okay, great. Did you know you can also do this? Um, and did you know that if you're singing in this context or this context, that actually might be a bit more acoustically efficient than doing it that way? And I don't want to confuse people, but I like to kind of say, you know, out of interest, did you know you can also do X, Y, Z? Because that way... Um, I think what we what we need to be looking at more as teachers in these genres is performance context. Something that works really well up close to a mic in a studio may not work as well on an outside soundstage at a, a music festival. So, you know, understanding that that is your sound um, and appreciating what makes your core sound and what you're going to be sold on is great. But also 
any circumstances where you may need some very small tweaks to that core sound in order to make it a bit more efficient. So that's I, I, that's the way I like to look at it, imitations and limitations. When it comes to this style, which is so free, and as you've mentioned, anything goes, how do you help somebody who might not know who they are, who uh, just know the sounds that they like, but they're not too sure of their emotional context, or they're doing covers, to find their authenticity and to emote in a way that is contextually appropriate as well. Well, there you see, you're coming back up, back around to some of the musical theatre stuff that we were singing earlier. If uh, um, some some artists, if they're writing their own material particularly, they they come to their own sound completely organically, just from what they've grown up listening to, and they and they they turn up ready made, and you don't really have to do a great deal to introduce them. Others are, yeah, finding their feet, especially younger people. They're finding their feet, you know. I tend to talk to them a lot about what kind of music they enjoy listening to and what kind of music they they can see themselves performing. And then what I like to do is have a conversation with them and say, okay, what what do you like listening to? Can can we listen to that? Can we have a listen? You know, oh, right, really, yeah, that's really interesting, what they're doing there with their tone. You know, do you like that aspect of it? Do you not like it? And just have a discussion and then... I take from them and then I give my stuff um, as in older stuff that's in the similar kind of ballpark that they might not have heard of. So let's say, for example, it's a narrow example, but let's say someone comes in and wants to be Florence from Florence and the Machine um, and they're not quite there with the, you know, they just really like it, but they like aspects of it and they're able to say what they like and what they might put into performance. So then my job is to listen to everything they say about Florence the Machine, all her stuff, have a listen to it, any other artists that they like. And then I might say, okay, if you like this, have you tried Kate Bush? Have you looked at, um, you know, uh, people like um, Goldfrapp um, and, and stuff like that and just kind of feed into that and say, okay, she does this, I've noticed. Or she does, Would you like that? What do you think about that? It just gives them kind of somewhere to start. I think we risk it's difficult you don't want to ever lead someone too far down a path that, that you would feel is forced having said that if you know that you're you're trying to find your authentic voice and you don't know where to start it's helpful to at least have some guidelines don't you think just to have some some way of of, of getting them to listen i think listening widely is key it's so important to listen because it's such a vast landscape listening to lots and lots of different artists really helps inform your own style um and also just explaining that that style will probably change over time very few artists you know stay exactly the same their whole career you know even small changes can be noticeable so i think just doing doing that but never kind of imposing on it anyone never saying well you'd sound better if you did this because that that, that is not going to work it's uh, it's really about options and you have to be led by what the student likes and what they appreciate. And, and then just, you know, try it. And, and you can say to people, um, you know, go into a corner in a rehearsal over and try things in lots of different ways. I still do it now. If I'm I'm a soul singer, if someone gives me a song to do, something doesn't quite feel right in the way that I'm interpreting it, I will literally go into a corner and try different vowel shapes out until it feels right and different positionings. And then I'll try it out a few times. And if it feels comfortable and I like it, I go with it but I do have to try some things out. So I tell them that. I say, look, I still do that all the time. So it's a question of kind of feeding them 
but not telling them exactly what to eat. And also encouraging them to listen with different ears. Like we listen when we're cooking, you know, we're singing along. We're not necessarily listening in a way of let's listen and see what these sounds are doing or slow down the playback speed so that we can hear that like yodely flip that Adele does. So the yodel flip is very much in fashion at the moment. It's, you know, and these devices, they come and they go. Um, and, you know, if someone wants to know how to do that, then absolutely I will help teach them how to do that. But I'll also say, you know, it can also be done this way. I I really find live performances of the songs side by side with the recorded versions incredibly helpful as well, because then you see that the same singer doesn't just replicate everything they do in the studio. They change their keys. They change their onsets. They change something. They don't always stay fixed to that one recording. Um, And I think that's really important as well to give them the context. Mm, Yeah, I really like that. Audio and microphones was also part of this important research that you were doing. From that, what would you advise that the voice teacher has accessibly in their studio when they're teaching a singer of popular music styles? Um, I have um, I have a Rhoda studio mic that I use. To be fair, I don't really use it that often with students in that in, in that context. Um, I have used it a few times when people who are used to doing live performance are going into the studio and they're not used to to having that. It can be quite um, intimidating going from not using headphones, even if you if you're used to using in ear monitors as I do. It's a very different experience having over the head headphones where you can't hear any ambient sound and the sound you're getting back is rounded and it's been treated in a whole different way. So I will use it for that kind of context. Um, I mean, and then you just need your, your, your basic Sennheiser or Shure SM58, don't you really, for directional work. So um, I think it's really important once you've worked on the acoustic qualities that they want to work on, to work with a microphone in the context that they're, they're likely to use it the most. Because we are amplified singers. Even what we call acoustic sets aren't really acoustic. They're always amplified. Um, so, you know, we're never going to be, we don't ever have to project our voices acoustically across a concert hall. So it makes sense to use the tools that you would normally be using because they are part of your performance. They're part of who you are. Um, uh, Pat Wilson, the wonderful Pat Wilson from Australia, says um, you are a two part singer, one part body, one part microphone. Um, And I think that's true. You know, you can't separate the two. So why would you? How have your thoughts and ideas now changed since you've done all that research? I've got a lot angrier. I've got a lot. I'm not going to lie. I've got a lot angrier. It's quite interesting. There there are articles at the moment in the Journal of Voice about this, um, and it is increasingly being written about, um, which is this dominance of the Western white music tradition um, in, in terms of cultural dominance and um, acceptability and the whole debate about high art and low art that came out of the the late 19th century um, and has pretty much pervaded ever since. Once you start delving into the world of musicology, you start to see, and and history, you start to see patterns. Matt Edwards and and his wife, Jackie Zito Edwards, they're talking about this in in the Journal of Voice, um, sorry, Journal of Singing, that's Journal of Singing at the moment. 
Um, and it's something I came across a lot. And it made me it made me angry and it made them angry. And I think it makes people, you know, why? Why has it dominated for so long? It's unfortunately essentially classist and racist. So, you know, that's one big thing that's changed is I've become much more, I would say, politically active in that way. Um, not through kind of, but just through saying enough is enough. It's time, you know, for, for us to be treated with respect for our skills um, and, you know, background and history, much as it is the same. So there's that's the one of the major things that's changed with me is I I've always loved it, but I never felt quite so, you know, passionately sort of focused on it until the last five years, I would say. And that was reading a lot of that stuff really put that in my mind. Um, what else has it changed? Um, I think just understanding that much better understanding of, of the problems that can occur when singers don't understand the difference between studio context and live context. I think that's another thing that's really come out of this. And through my own observations of going to a lot of music festivals and seeing singers who are used to recording in their bedrooms suddenly famous on TikTok and going out on the road and the sound engineers must be pulling their hair out because it's a totally different environment and they haven't been trained for it. So just those two things I'd say are probably the biggest things. If you were to create the course, and maybe this is where it's going for you, if you were to create the course to help popular music singing teachers teach this style what would that look like what would it look like um well the plan <laughs> the plan for the phd is to basically expand upon what i've already done so at the moment i've got three projects that i'm hoping will tie into the one whole so the plan was to to spend my first year of the phd um just expanding my literature review, updating it, because obviously I'm trying to keep on top of all the things that are being published. And there's an explosion of it at the moment, which is fantastic. So, you know, new books are out, new papers are out, new stuff. So that's going to come into it. Um, I also want to talk to more teachers um, more widely about um, all of their experiences within teaching in Israel. So that was number one. Number two was I wanted to talk to more sound engineers and producers um, and people working with singers and ask them what they want their singers to know. What do they want from them? Um, what language do they use? Because I'm finding this a lot. What language do they use that's different from, from singer's language? How is that a problem? You know, how, how does everybody get what they want? Um, and then lastly, I want to uh, talk to students about what they feel they need um, within the industry. And then ultimately the plan is to put all of that together into one working document um, and then to go from there. So I can't see, I think the original categories I have will, will stand. Um, I think that I will be making it a bit more modular. So I'll be looking at these things as individual modules um, because they're not always applicable to everybody. So, but um, definitely cultural context is a big, big, big one, historical and cultural context um, of the styles um, of, of particular genre. And um, yeah, and, and studio production uh, um, and sound engineer language. Um, those are the two biggies, I would say, at the moment that I'm looking at. I'd also love to, if time allows, look more at the neurological side of things because I haven't yet. That's one area that I haven't spent a lot of time on is Heidi Moss is doing some amazing stuff on, on singing in the brain, um, you know, and Lynn Heldings book and stuff like that. That's something I'd love to include. Um, 
And again, if time allows, if time allows, because I have to stop somewhere, I have to draw the line somewhere, mental health, popular music and mental health have a, an, an issue um, and that they have a, you know, they coincide a lot. I'd say mental health with with, with any musician, particularly at the moment, post-COVID. Um, but I think there's something about the pressures of musicians working within that environment. Um, there's something that we need to look at also, you know, historically the treatment of women in that industry. Um, and it would be great if we could have a module around that area. But again, I, I, I think it's my life's work. <laughs> I probably won't ever stop. So I, I will probably have to draw the line under it somewhere, um, you know, but we'll need to keep updating it anyway, because the industry changes every five minutes. Yeah. So, you know, we, we have to, this is going to be a continual thing. It's never going to stop. And something that doesn't change is history and you have highlighted there the real importance of the contextual background of the stars that we're singing how do you advise that us as voice teachers best communicate that to our students are there particular resources or videos or a way that we can deliver that which they will be able to absorb okay so if you're looking at um classic soul for example um, if you're looking at um, anyone like Whitney Houston, Aretha Franklin, you have to be looking at gospel and you have to be looking at the origins of gospel singing, in which case, academically, the person to talk to is Dr. Trenise Robinson Martin, who has just written these incredible works on, on gospel singing and really has written the book, literally written the book on that stuff. But I think you need to be looking at videos of gospel choirs, videos of gospel performances, you know, videos of when they were children singing in church, Beyonce also. Um, and all of Destiny's Child. It's a huge part of their upbringing, a huge part of their life, um, and has its own cultural and stylistic tradition. So, you know, there's a lot of drawing from lots of different things. Hip hop, really, really important to know where hip hop comes from. Um, grime also, and grime is something that, you know, obviously <laughs> me at nearly 50, I'm not gonna call myself an expert on grime, but my daughters love it. Um, and we talk about it all the time. Where does it come from? Why? And you know, and it comes out of out of working class Britain. It's really important to understand where these things come from. Um, so I would say, really, you know, when you're looking at a genre, try and look at where it came from. If you're looking at uh, rock and roll, old style rock and roll, you have to look at the blues and where did the blues come from and why do all these artists sing in the way they do why does Mick Jagger sing in that ridiculous accent he put it on because he wanted to sound like an American black American blues singer that's why he sings like that and he's come up with his own kind of hybrid style but you know he was deliberate if you read into it he was deliberately trying to hide his white middle class accent because it didn't fit the profile so there are always you know there's in any genre there's there are origins and if you understand more about their origins, then you understand much more about what it is you're singing in the style you're singing. Um, but ultimately, um, you need to know yourself and where you come from. Um, because, you know, something ah, something that did come up, actually, um, I'm a big fan, especially today when I sound like this, I'm a big fan of, of twanginess, uh, exciting, acoustic, you know, um, stuff, really, really exciting, the 6,000 6, to 8,000 kilohertz um kilohertz hertz boundary um in terms of harmonic resonance it just really just boosts you get an almost kind of sizzle at the top and i love a bit of twang um so you know i used to talk a lot about twang and trying twang and then someone quite rightly said to me well what if i'm from liverpool i don't need to learn how to do twang if i'm from liverpool 
No, you don't. That's a very good point. So twang is your natural, will be part of your natural accent. Whereas me from the Southeast, I don't have it in my speaking voice. So, you know, looking at where you come from culturally and, and your origins is as important as looking at, at, at the genres because, you know, it's you need to know where you come from and where you fit and why it's important to you. This is, I think this is something that's really coming very strongly out of Scotland at the moment. If you listen to people like Lewis Capaldi and Paolo Nutini, their accents are there. That would never have happened in popular music, you know, however many years ago. The only people that really did that was the Proclaimers. Now, sort of mainstream popular music, people are singing in their own accents and it's acceptable in a way that it didn't used to be. I think that's great. Each singer is so individual. So as you said in the beginning, we must teach the person in front of us. But what would you say is a good lesson structure for somebody who is coming in to sing this popular music style? Uh, okay, so are we talking about someone who wants to sing a cover to begin with or someone who has their own song that they want to go through with you? Let's go with a cover first and then we'll go on to an original. Okay, so um, my approach with cover songs um, is, first of all, to look at the genre um, and is there, are there any sort of cultural origins that it's important to understand? If not, um, let's say, you know, for example, an Adele song, probably is less important than understanding what she's singing about. So, you know, the first thing to look at is what is the song about? What's it about? Um, and what attracts you to it? And how would you say these words in your own tongue, so to speak? How would you express what she or he is expressing at this point? And, you know, and then sort of working from there. Because um, it, 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 you know, it tends to be quite direct, doesn't it? Popular music singing, well, not always, but you know, quite often is is direct. So starting from a speech perspective is good. Like, how would you just say it? And then, you know, how is that differing from, you know, the rhythm of the music? Do you have to elongate your word there? If you're going to elongate that word, do you do it with the vowel or with the consonant? That's the fun thing about popular music is you can do both. There are lots of different options. So I'd say start from a speaking perspective an expression, and then work work outward from there. That's where I tend to go with that. If there's anything cultural, you know, if you're singing something like Natural Woman by Aretha Franklin, for example, that's, that's Carole King wrote it, but the, the, the tradition of it is gospel, you know? So you start with the rhythm of it, which is that hold it dum 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 So looking at 12 eight-time signatures, six eight-time signatures, those rhythms that come up, quite, you know, that will come up. But ultimately... It's looking at the words, isn't it? And saying, well, how would you say it? How would you sing it? You know, you know what the tune is. What, what would you do with it? You know, um, and then, you know, we might look at um, a lick or, or a little sort of diversion from it. What other melodies could you choose there? What other things could you do with it? Just to make it their own. Um, and it's just kind of feeding into all of those things um, bit by bit. But it's with every student, it depends where you start from and where their confidence areas are, I would say. But yeah, looking at all those things are quite important. And how would that then differ to when somebody brings you an original that they've written? Honestly, the first thing I do with anything that anyone's written is um, if I feel they're confident just doing it in front of me, you know, off the bat, I would rather them do that first. Most, um, you know, original artists are singer-songwriters who play an instrument at the same time. So I'll just have them sit at the piano and do it for me or bring their guitar in and do it for me. And I'll be watching their posture while they're doing it 
or I'll be listening out for anything that might sort of, and I will just work from a vocal health perspective then first. Okay, have you tried this? Or I'll get them to do it and I'll go, okay, what bothers you about that then? What do you, what would you want to change? What do you love about it? What don't you love about it? And work from there. Um, sometimes they are too shy to do that in front of you to begin with, in which case I'll get them to send me a recording and I'll have a listen and then we'll listen to the recording together in the lesson and we'll go over it and we'll talk. You know, because a lot of the times, you know, they, they've already figured out what it is they want to express and how they might want to express it sonically, but they might not know how to reproduce it physically. So it's sort of looking at it from that perspective. So, yeah, you have to kind of take a different starting point, I would suggest. Amazing. You have read through a whole host of stuff uh, over this yeah. many years <laughs> that you've been looking at it. Is there anything resource-wise that kind of pops out at you that you think our listeners and myself would benefit from reading or listening to? Yeah, um, absolutely I do. Um, honestly, um, I would listen to um, Marisa's, Marissa's, um Lee's podcast, A Voice and Beyond. Um, I would listen to uh, uh, the Chris Johnson um, and podcast. Gosh, what's that called? My, my brain's gone blank. The Naked Vocalists. Thank you. The Naked Vocalist podcast. Really, really good podcast. And the and the Bass podcast, of course, because there's all sorts of resources on there. Um, in terms of books, um, I really love, um, I've got some of them behind me so I can turn, I can show you. Um, in terms of very sort of anatomy and physiology and all the basic stuff, I like Christina Shule's voice work. She's the genius. I think she's wonderful and I love her stuff. Um, from the rock and pop perspective, uh, the So You Want to Sing Rock and Roll series is good by Matt Edwards. Again, I would look at John Henney's work from a voice acoustics perspective. Um, voice exercises. Um, I love Kim Chandler's um, funky and fun ones. And I really like the ones in This Is a Voice, the, the, the uh, Fisher and Kay's book. Um, and Anne Peckham's contemporary workouts, some really good ones on there as well. Um, trying to think... Do you know what? The the book that I would really recommend for studio singing, people who wanted to look at, at session singing, is a, a one that is not cited nearly enough, and that's Jennifer Hamady's book, The Art of Singing in the in the Studio and on Stage. It's just brilliant. Um, it's so clear and it's so it is so concise. So I would say all of those, um, and Marissa's book is also excellent. They're all really good resources. It's happening, finally. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. And where can people find out more about you and follow this work that you're doing? Um, so probably via the website first, which is www.popvocaltraining.co.uk, um, where I'll be updating on any articles and stuff I've written. I also write for singinginpopularmusics.com, so you'll find me as a contributor on there. Um, I have a Facebook page and I also have a YouTube channel um, under those things. So at the moment I'm recording a song every week. And then I, I record it. Someone asked me to do it. I record it on YouTube and then I discuss it afterwards, uh, the different sort of qualities that are being used there and everything and just kind of breaking the voice down. So, um, yeah, quite a few ways. Yeah, we'll make sure they're included in the show notes. So, Josie, thank you so much. It's been so great to chat with you and good luck for your future and your PhD. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alexa.
Looking to expand your vocal knowledge and add to your teacher toolbox? Then you're in the right place. BAST are here to guide you with our membership, a growing virtual library packed with educational videos spanning a whole host of voice teacher topics. It's just £1 for the first two weeks and £6 each month after that. Now that's what I call a bargain. To join, just head to our website www.basttraining.com.